Good evening and welcome to Narrative Medicine Rounds. My name is Deepu Gowda. I'm a hospitalist here, a general internist. Um, I have a couple roles at the medical center. One is I run a course called Foundations of Clinical Medicine Tutorials. Any of our students here today? Oh, they're studying. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's that time of the year, it's to, towards the end when finals are, are, are upon us. Um, it's the course where really we, we take the basic sciences and basic clinical skills and the students early in their curriculum go to the bedside and they think about how do I interview a patient? You know, how can I be a diagnostician and think about symptoms while also trying to engage with this person as a human being? Um, how can I learn to support this person? How can I develop rapport in a time of illness, in a time of uh, real vulnerability? So that's really the course that I'm involved with um, and, and working with our students. Um, and just so you know, if you don't know about our curriculum here, right alongside these very rigorous science courses and you know, thinking about molecular mechanisms and pathophysiology, throughout the entire four years, we have a robust curriculum in reflective writing. We have a curriculum in narrative medicine where all the first year students take a course or required course in narrative medicine taking a course in dance or fiction writing um, or philosophy of death. Um, so we've really found a way over the years to really merge these powerful forces of scientific inquiry with the very heart of what it means to be a physician and a healer, which is connecting with the patient and thinking about what it means to understand the patient's plight and be there with them through those, uh, those tough times. Um, this is a particularly... Uh, uh, momentous time in the history of Columbia University, as well as, I think, for medical humanities as a whole, in that of two days ago now, um, narrative medicine is no longer a program or an institute or, uh, or even a master's program. It is now a division within the medical school. <laughs> and and uh, Rita Sharon, who will introduce uh, our speakers tonight, is now a department chair. Um, and I want to give you a sense of what that means. So the departments at the medical school are surgery, like all of surgery, internal medicine, like all of internal medicine, pediatrics, right? These are departments. Within the departments, there are divisions. So internal medicine has, does a, a dozen or so departments. And so the, the new department is the Department of Medical <coughs> Humanities and Ethics, which will have divisions of narrative medicine, of the history of medicine, as well as ethics. So it's a real powerful time to once again um, to recognize that these things all belong within the House of Healing um, in a very rigorous way, but also in a scholarly way and in a way that is actually put to practice. Um, so we're, we're particularly proud to be here during this time. Uh, I want you to also look, look ahead at your calendars. This is the last narrative medicine rounds this, this year, this calendar year, uh, but we'll be resuming in February, and we'll be joined by Gayathri Devi. Uh, Dr. Devi is a neurologist. She's a graduate of the narrative medicine master's program. Um, she's a very serious clinician who is very sought after, and she's also a writer. And uh, she's written a new book called The Spectrum of Hope, An Optimistic and New Approach to Alzheimer's disease and other dementias. Um, so we hope that you will join us for that. Um, really kind of trying to reconceptualize what Alzheimer's is as a disease, while also really uh, populating the book 
from patient nurses. I also want to let you know that registration is now open for a uh, narrative medicine workshop in March on palliative care, narrative palliative care, a narrative medicine workshop. We'll be joined by B.J. Miller and our own Craig Blunderman, who are both physicians and experts in palliative care. And we think about all the fields of medicine um, and recognize that palliative care is one of the ones that is most close to actually putting into practice narrative medicine where we're thinking about illness and suffering from a very broad perspective, really situated in the illness experience of the patient. Um, the core faculty will do uh, talks uh, like usual, but they will actually be new talks uh, that are focused really around the issue of palliative care. If you've never done a narrative medicine workshop before, I really urge you to come. It's a different kind of experience than you know reading or even being in a, um, an event like this in that it is a very deep dive, intensive experience over several days with people from all around the world, uh, really learning about the methodologies, but also practicing them and really getting to know people uh, from around the world who care about things that you do. Um, if you've never done a workshop before, you can do it as a basic workshop. If you've done the workshop before, you can do it as an advanced, which means you'll come a day early um, and you'll be uh, separated out in terms of uh, being with other people who are doing the advanced workshop and you'll have a chance to uh, even deepen your knowledge and practice uh, of the narrative medicine uh, materials that we'll, we'll be engaged with. Um, and the last announcement is I, I welcome you to join us at VEC, um, which is the Vagilos Educational Building, which is on Haven on 171st. That's our new educational building um, that, was, that was funded by Roy Vagilos, um, who you've probably also heard just uh, donated uh, $250 million to Columbia University to set up uh, funding around precision medicine, but also a huge chunk of that is going to provide funding to help make Columbia University uh, School of Medicine loan-free for its students. Another amazing uh, moment. Um, and, uh, and the building is beautiful if you've never been there, but on the first floor of the building, there's a small gallery, and, and we have uh, illustrations by Bob Mankoff, who uh, for many years was the head of illustrations for The New Yorker. Um, and they will be rotating, uh, so go by and check that out as well. So now I welcome Rita Sharon. Uh, Rita Sharon is an internist. I worked with Rita side by side for over a dozen years in the AIM Clinic right here at Columbia. Um, she is a literary scholar. She's one of the founders of our field of narrative medicine, and she's the executive director of the program. I, I just want a few minutes, just, just very short, to tell you um, what's happening tonight with this, with this uh, presentation. Um, narrative medicine has had progeny. So we've been at this since 2000. And um, among those who joined us as students of narrative medicine and faculty within the narrative medicine program, who themselves are social workers, there has arisen the field of narrative social work, the field of narrative practice in social work. And what we're about to hear is it's like Man, I mean, it's like looking at your grandkids. <laughs> because, because you see in the, uh, in the creation that you helped to spawn something about what you are that you didn't know before you saw the progeny. Am I right? And, and, and what it just shows 
for us is um, not just the, um, okay, these are ideas that can be tailored. So maybe there's narrative dentistry, there already is narrative psychiatry, but this is like it grew from our work. It is our work, and now it's transposed into, indeed, a very different diction that social work is not uh, um, the medicine nursing body work. <laughs> it's not ordinary medicine, if you will. Uh, but it shows us even more richly, with more nuance, the, the possibilities of narrative practice within the emotional, social, cultural, relational, intersubjective worlds. And that's what we're going to hear now. And Thank you, Rita. Being honored at Rounds today is a long-awaited delight and honor. There are two phrases. <clears throat> Thanks. There are two phrases that follow you from the moment you enter the door of social work school until you leave, which in my case was 40 years later. The first is start where the client is, and the second, trust the process. So it was that in 2011, a handful of gerontological social workers began meeting in my living room. To do what? We weren't sure. All we knew was that our profession was no longer starting where the client was, but where the computer-generated form was. A digital revolution that not only obliterated every ounce of our client's individuality, but our own. And that we had each devised a narrative method to back the trend. Our core group of five came together to lament, to share, to work toward a better day. And then, in 2012, I joined the program in narrative medicine, and there I met four more social workers who spoke our language, and I got three referrals from weekend workshops. Different fields, practice settings, client populations, each doing another narrative intervention. It looked like a book to me. <laughs> <clears throat> and I was blessed by already having editors at Columbia University Press, Jennifer Perillo and Stephen Wesley, I don't know if Stephen is here, thought he was going to go, um, who welcomed a proposal. But they asked for even more, more diversity, more authors. Once again, we grew. In search of co-editors, I approached Lynn Lawrence and Lynn Mahangos. They became the Linnies, who autocorrect insists on converting to the Lynxes. <laughs> All I knew about them was that they were solid social workers who shared my commitment to the mission of our profession, its code of ethics, its core competencies. And being graduates of the program, they knew much more about narrative than I did. I could not have known of Lynn Lawrence's depth and capacity for detail, Lynn Mahangos's technical and organizational ability. I could not have known their generosity of spirit and time, or of how our different temperaments and working styles would mesh. I could not have known 
how Lynn Lawrence would balance my irrational exuberance with rational doubts that set us on a better course, <laughs> or of how the clarity and calm of Lynn Mahangos would often save the day. The book consists of 16 first-person narratives. The social worker author puts herself in the story of the intervention, often bucking the way things are done. She broke new ground. All of you here today, whatever discipline or interest, are, as Rita would put it, our cousins. And our social workbook invites you into our house to see who we are, what we do, why we do it. Each chapter takes us on a different trip with a different tour guide to all that it means to care and to serve. Starting where the client and we were, trusting the process, we made it here today. Bravo to all. Several of our authors were unable to attend today, but happily, many are here. Lynn, Lynn, and I each read everyone's chapter many times, but there were a handful of people who we were particularly responsible for, and we called them our peeps. And so we are each going to be proud to introduce our peeps. Um, and they will each, in turn, read a brief excerpt from their chapter. I am going to first begin introducing Lynn Lawrence. Pick up the book. Marvel at the beautiful cover and know that it was chosen by Lynn Lawrence, who wrote of her engagement with the picture over time, each return to it generating new insights, and then turn to the index and find exactly what you were looking for, and know that Lynn not only insisted that the adequate one I was willing to settle for would not do, and she not only advocated for a replacement, she even drafted pages to show the new index of just how it was to be done. And that is our index, and that is my Lenny, Lynn Lawrence. I feel like I'm at the Academy Awards. <laughs> and actually, I have to correct one thing that you said. It was Rita who suggested that this painting be the cover. I, I had no but idea. She chose the yes, I, I the painting chose me. Okay. <clears throat> this is a thrill. Thank you all for coming. I would like to thank the Narrative Medicine Program for hosting us and extending the invitation to the Columbia School of Social Work, our cousins, who have been so generous in giving us so many platforms with which to showcase the narrative method. Thanks also to Donna Belusco for her expertise and equanimity in planning this event. As a student in the narrative medicine program, I submitted a paper that I thought was both faithful to the assignment and well-written. It came back with the words, you need a good editor. <laughs> Scrawled across the front. Humbled, I spoke to the faculty member, and I rewrote the paper. So, I didn't know what Ann Burek Weiss was thinking when she asked me to be part of this editorial enterprise. I'm not an editor, I protested. Ann was undeterred. 
We were all in or it wouldn't happen. Who was I to break this sisterhood of the three fates? Clotho, who spun the thread, Lachesis, who dispensed it, and Atropos, who ultimately cut it. We were all three of us, the fates, working together to weave this tapestry of a book. I would like to think this experience, starting with the critique of my paper, made me more sensitive as an editor to the writer's voices and ultimately made me a better writer. Less Lynn, more linear. <laughs> I am indebted to Anne Burak Weiss for her relentless optimism and her generosity in inviting all social workers who were already working in this vein to the table, to her living room. Obstacle is not a word in her vocabulary. <laughs> Similarly, my dear friend and colleague, Lynn Mahangos, does not know the verb to sleep. <laughs> and stayed up nights till 4 a.m., skillfully weaving and cutting and unraveling complex technological snafus, such as when writers' chapters migrated into other writers' chapters <laughs> when we tried to assemble this behemoth of a manuscript online. One of us worked in the dead of night, one in dawn's early light. But for four years, we met in this waiting room of cyberspace. Each of us contribute our, contributed our skills, and the whole, hopefully, is greater than the sum of its parts. The power of story and giving voice to that story became the frame in which the narrative practice of social work was launched. In my collaboration with the writers in my group, over breakfast, lunch, and coffee, everyone was stunned when I asked them how they got into this work. What was their story? Could they insert a bit of it into this chapter? By and large, this was greeted with an incomprehensible, you mean you want me to write about me? Yes, I do. This co-construction, sometimes giving voice to the untold gripping story of the writer, became a catalytic agent in the service of the client and enriched both stories. Such is the power of co-constructing narratives. And yet, that hesitation or inhibition was the same reaction I had when the tables were turned once more on myself, when I had come out from behind the therapist's couch to write my story. The most innocent of assignments led me to a painting and the co-construction of my family history. It wasn't a bed of roses, but that's part of the beauty of narrative. We might have been the editors, but we all had skin in the game, and in that way, this book diminishes hierarchies. I never would have written my chapter if not for the narrative medicine program. The principles of close reading, so rigorously and thrillingly taught by Rita, found their application in a close reading of a painting. The magic of narrative, as the social workers in this book demonstrate, is that anything can be a text, and fully immersing oneself in that text is both an inside and an outside experience, one of interiority and one of affiliation.
because as we've all seen, the more one reveals their vulnerability, the closer we get to others. Thank you. And now, to our wonderful writers. Heidi Mandel is a fierce advocate for patients and families, fierce. She's a supervisor at the Jewish Board. Her writing appears in Narratur, the literary journal of Hofstra Northwell Medical School. <coughs> Chris Lazar is a trauma therapist who wrote a searing chapter. She was recently promoted to the director of Bronx Child Trauma Support Program. Mary Cermonti may need no introduction. She's a professor of practice here at Columbia University School of Social Work. She taught the close reading and creative writing course in the inaugural online certificate program in narrative medicine. Two of my writers are not here. Uh, they had other engagements, unfortunately. Benifra Bada is a performance ar artist who works with marginalized people worldwide. Her chapter focuses on creating safe spaces for the transport workers in Kenya, afraid of the stigma of HIV testing. Lauren Taylor was recently appointed oral historian for the Emeritus Institute at Columbia. Her chapter, Sharing a Narrative Meal, demonstrates the therapeutic use of recording a client's story. Heidi. Hello, my name is Heidi Mandel. My chapter title is Jessie's Story, A Mother's Voice, A Social Work Journey. I was in my early 30s and newly married when I delivered my firstborn child, a preterm infant with a low APGAR score. A low APGAR score does not provide a specific diagnosis or prognosis, and though I did not ask many questions at the time, I worried. Along the heartbreaking course of our son's delayed milestones, we were confronted with an unfortunate number of physicians who were dismissive, patronizing, and uncommunicative. They lack the very basics in empathy, honesty, and respect. At the time, I was working as a medical social worker in a suburban hospital, but eventually I needed to take a leave of absence due to the care demands of my son. I felt defeated for many, many years, but managed to sustain the hope that at some future time and place, I would find a path to voice my disappointment with the medical community. I wanted to use my training and commitment to social work values to learn an effective and humanistic way to encourage physicians to express more compassion during the clinical encounter and to listen with greater sensitivity. This social work journey begins and ends with my personal voice. Thank you. My name is Kristen Slesser. My chapter is titled Another Kind of Witnessing, Narrative Medicine and the Trauma Therapist. 
What I did not write in the report was how difficult it was to hold Angel tightly without hurting her. Nor did I write how isolating and surreal it was that not one person from the district attorney's office, neither the assistant district attorneys who walked through the lobby doors, nor the security personnel who sat at the information desk, offered to help. Perhaps they didn't know how, but neither did we. We were a spectacle, two police officers, a screaming and fighting child, a disheveled therapist restraining a little girl. I did not write in the report that Angel sometimes paused her screaming and struggled against me in silence, sweat beating at her forehead, hair sticking to her skin. In those moments, I whispered to her, it wasn't your fault. Just breathe, and I'm sorry. Over and over, a terrible lullaby on the cold and unforgiving floor. I did not write that I feared she'd think of me as another adult who had hurt her, that I'd failed her or somehow missed something. My name is Mary Cervanti, and the title of my chapter is Reading and Writing Really Are Fundamental, How Stories Shape Professional Development. My professional training had predisposed me to think and act in ways that may have undermined the collaborative spirit of team-based care that I so enjoyed. I held preconceived notions about other professional disciplines. Without realizing it, I had been indoctrinated into a professional silo and had neither the training nor the professional maturity to transcend it. The narrative medicine program not only invigorated my ideas about healthcare delivery, but also in turn shaped my ongoing efforts to be mindful and creative about my pedagogy with social work students. For example, during the first class meeting of my social work practice courses, I engaged students in a simple activity that underscores the notions that people are multi-storied and that stories are multi-layered. I lead into the activity by letting students know that, be that because we'll be working together for a number of months, I believe it's important for us to start by getting to know one another. I go first, focusing initially on the educational and professional achievements that one might discover on my university webpage. I tell them I'm the mother of a school-aged son and the legal guardian of a teenage niece. I tell them I have a motorcycle license, and though I haven't ridden a motorcycle since my son was born, I hope to do so again. I tell them that I failed organic chemistry during my freshman year of college, that I'm certified with the National Bartenders Association, and that my brother died very suddenly nearly 20 years ago, and I still grieve his absence. As some of their eyes widen, I tell them they now have a slightly fuller sense of who I am. But I emphasize that even with the additional information that I've chosen to share, there is still much more they don't know about me. I also suggest that this is likely true, to some extent, in all relationships, perhaps especially in the relationship between a professional service provider and a recipient of that service.
again. My chapter is entitled, The Garden at Vaucresson. It's not all a bed of roses. That's the painting. The painting is large, almost five feet by four feet. It is impressionistic. The foreground is lit with yellows, the color of mourning. The middle ground of the painting is in dark greens, shaded, and in the background, the manor house is dappled with light. There is a profusion of foliage, and the purple fox down the length of the painting invites the eye to travel back toward the manor house. Flowers, especially the white roses, continue toward the house, becoming transformed into dappled light. An outline of the balcony is visible because of the railing and the elevated height of the woman figure encased within it, looking downward, wearing a pink kimono. I want to be in the painting, reading, enjoying the morning light. I let my mind wander, wishing I could sit down and time travel into the painted garden, but there are no benches in this gallery. I've been close looking for more than 20 minutes before I see the caption alongside the painting, which reads in part, quote, the woman in the house dress is Lucy's cousin, Marcel Aron. Lucy kneels across from her at left, camouflaged by one of the large rose bushes that serve as decorative screen in the foreground. I'm stunned. In all my looking, I had not seen Lucy. Prompted by the caption, I look and ultimately find the figure of a woman hidden by a giant white rose. This moment of recognition, this moment of a new now, when another reality intrudes, changes everything. I'm unsettled, no longer at ease in the garden. I feel like a voyeur, staring at something I'm not supposed to see, something the artist took care to camouflage. I'm caught, and I turn my back on the dappled morning light, the white roses, the red poppies, and the gorgeous garden that no longer invites. I leave the museum for the welcoming anonymity of night falling in New York City. Thank you. And now it's my honor to introduce my friend and colleague, Lynn Mijangos. Lynn, I'm sure, also needs no introduction here. She heads the practicum and this fall has been teaching in the inaugural online narrative medicine certificate program. Lynn. Thank you. I want to thank um, the program for having us here for my education. I want to thank Anne and Lynn for the co-constructions and the intersubjectivity as sustained endeavor of four years, as you heard, of the 17 voices that are a part of this book. Now I'll introduce the next four authors. Um, Alison Fry, Al Alicia Fry, I'm sorry, Alicia, um, is a social work practitioner. She's also a trainer and, very importantly, a supervisor, which her chapter is about. Constance H. Jemson Gemson is um, a poet and she also conducts workshops that are around creativity and risk and change. Madeline Miller, she teaches social worker at NYU Silver School of Social Work. 
And her commitment, lifelong, I think, has been to working across trauma with colleagues and with clients. And Judith Levy, Levi. <laughs> I've got everyone wrong so far. <laughs> Judith um, has many degrees, uh, undergraduate degrees in art, in religious education, in um, Hebrew. She has master's degrees in social work and in literature. She now, in retirement, is a valued member of literature at work that occurs here every, twice every month. So, uh, Alicia, do you want to lead off? Thank you, Lynn, and not just for the lovely introduction for everything. It truly, truly is an honor and a pleasure to be here. My name is Alicia Fry, and the title of my chapter is The Worker Mentor Story, Narrative Approaches in Social Work Supervision. And here's a brief essay. A fair portion of our time in group supervision focused on the challenges of incorporating narrative approaches into our day-to-day -day work, which tends to be rather concrete, documentation-heavy, and deadline-driven, which with the constant pressure of feeling there is not enough time. As a group, we acknowledge these challenges and committed to pursuing narrative in spite of them, believing that the use of narrative may actually save time by preventing what Lauren Shulman, may he rest in peace, called the illusion of work. In the grandparent exercise, participants chose one grandparent, living or deceased, and speaking as that grandparent, tell a piece of his or her story to the group. During this exercise, some workers became quite emotional as they imagined themselves in the person of their grandparent. One case manager spoke as his grandmother, a Holocaust survivor, and was able to convey and connect with her suffering as well as her hope and resilience. Another spoke as her grandfather, an Irish immigrant who grew up in a large, impoverished family. We were poor, she said, but we didn't know we were poor. Once I asked my father if we were rich or poor, and he replied, dear, we are very rich. Rich in family, rich in friends, rich in love. Workers then connect these bits of their family histories to the stories of the people with whom they work. Good evening. I'm Connie Gemson, and I'm delighted to be here, and thank you all for having this special event. The title of my article is called Grace Notes, Singing in Marion's Hospital Room. Marion was my mother-in-law for less than a year. I married her son when she was 95. She attended our small wedding, accompanied by her supportive home health aide who provided consistent care and tenderness. At 96, Marion was still teaching at an Ivy League graduate school. Her energy and commitment were legendary in the college and in the field. She was the author of many books, Marion organized lively Sunday salons at her apartment, which featured animated discussion and debate. She was the unique professor whom students remembered years after graduation. 
Suddenly, but not unexpectedly, at 96, she developed pneumonia. She was rushed to the hospital by ambulance. Her life changed and shifted. She was a patient. The hospital provided excellent care, but her new schedule was based on doctor's orders, not on her needs and desires. Marion was used to being in charge in her spacious apartment, in her classroom, where she was welcomed as the expert and celebrated as the intellectual hero. Now her life was restricted and limited to a small square hospital room shared with a stranger. She seemed depressed and isolated. She found the hospital foreign and upsetting. What could I do? I was trained as a social worker, experienced in working with the elderly, but this was different. I was the new family member, a relative stranger, compared to the academic friends who had known Marion for years. My husband and I tried to think of a creative solution to help her. I'll give you a clue. It's all about the music. Thank you. <laughs> Scheherazade, social worker as interpreter of social, cultural, and familial maladies. I knew it had something to do with the hospitals. <laughs> Since childhood, people and their narratives have fascinated me. I grew up in a Brooklyn, in Brooklyn, the daughter of a rabbi, feeling imprisoned by religion and conventional morality. My library card became my passport to the world outside my Jewish and Italian neighborhood. And, the, and between the covers of the books, I escaped to other lands, other cultures, and into a world rich with emotions. A voyeur, voyaging in dangerous waters, I simultaneously stayed safely ashore. Reading stories saved me as surely as telling stories saved my heroine, Scheherazade, who so fascinated her husband, King Shaharia, with more than a thousand nights of tales that he spared her life and the lives of all the virgins in his kingdom. The social worker in a medical setting typically connects patients, family, staff, and institution. She or he serves as a guide through, labyrinths of, through the labyrinths of bureaucracy, as interpreter of medical jargon, and as cultural diplomat shuttling between communities and care centers. In other words, the social worker is Scheherazade, providing essential narratives to extend and enhance the lives 
of many in the multicultural setting of an urban hospital. There were mer and th therefore there were many opportunities for me to play Scheherazade. Working with my, very, with my very first case, I felt that I could draw on my literary studies and cultural upbringing in an effort to save a family. And if you want to know more about this family and how I saved them, buy the book. <laughs> I'm Madeline Miller. The title of my chapter is Narrative Research, Discoveries in Listening to Clinician Scholars' Experiences of Working Across Trauma and Loss. My research was underway in August of 2008. I had just completed my first interview, and I quite intentionally chose to walk for a while before starting my travel back to New York, I needed to take in the powerful, evocative, philosophic dimensions of the conversation and the experience itself. I needed to absorb the layers of emotion and imagery I now held. The narrative, narrative had been moving, poetic. The engagement had been transfixing. Along the way, I made a variety of notes, and as I walked, I began to realize just how deeply I had experienced the exchange. It stayed with me as I traveled, and well beyond. It is with me now, some years later, as I write and as I read. Once back to the city, I returned to the interview Hoping to stay closely engaged, I wanted to examine the text and move ahead with data analysis within the narrative research frame I had chosen. With the just transcribed document in front of me, I decided I would simultaneously listen to the audio recording to check the transcript for accuracy. I assumed I'd have the simple task of completing one slow, focused read-through from beginning to end as I compared spoken word to text. Instead, as I listened to the recording, I was taken beyond the transcript, back to the narrative's layered dimensions and its wider experience, deeply affected. Thank mm -hmm.
chapter is stuck in the intersection of stories. A mother hears the short, sharp sound of her own heels against the wax linoleum floor of a hospital corridor as she makes her way to the isolation room where her five-year-old daughter has been a patient for the past eight days. No communicable disease or infection has been identified, and since entering the hospital for fever and dehydration, the girl has not vomited. She's pale, but she's eating, and her temperature is normal. The doctor wrote her discharge order this morning. Here in the hospital corridor, the mother passes a nurse's aide who comes out of the men's ward, pulling a stainless steel squeaky-wheeled cart laden with breakfast trays. The smell of oatmeal and half-eaten eggs mingles with base notes of hospital antisepsis. These smells are most, more familiar than she would like, not only from visits this past week, but also from eight days on the second floor maternity ward six months earlier. Full term, she had delivered a stillborn baby boy. The baby's body was released for burial before she was discharged from the hospital. Only her husband stood with an undertaker in the March wind and pushed the metal marker with the name John Robert and the year 1954 into snow-covered ground on the edge of the church cemetery. Now halfway down the hospital corridor, she hears, Mommy, Mommy! Her daughter has memorized the sound of her footsteps this week as she approaches the isolation room during visiting hours. Mommy, Mommy, she calls again. I have good news. I get to go home today. The girl's voice pulls her into the present. Daily, her children's voices pull her from muzzy, sad, gray thoughts. She laughs and crosses the threshold to the five-year-old, who she calls her easy child, the girl who is easier to please and quicker to laugh than her four-year-old sister. I was that easy child. Thank you. Now I'd like to um, bring Ann Burick Weiss back again. She's going to introduce some people, do some more reading. Um, but I also want to tell you that in the time that we were working on this, um, on, on this book that we're reading from, Ann published a book called The Lioness in Winter. And she read from that here last year. In the meantime, she and Heather Carriou who is also a graduate of the Narrative Medicine program, have adapted parts of that book into a theatrical performance, and they are expecting an off-Broadway production soon. Expectation is rather a strong word, but we can expect. There are two of my authors who are not here today. Uh, two chapters represented. Both of them spoke truth to power. And both of them were uh, involved with the uh, administration of children's services. Uh, Christiana Best grew up in Grenada, where her mother had to leave to come to this country to be a nanny to other people's children. And she did her doctoral research on nannies and what they experienced, so she got it from both sides. Nora McCarthy and um, Rachel Lustain of RISE uh, run writing workshops for parents who have lost their kids to the child welfare system or are in danger of losing them. 
and on their stories. They're quite powerful chapters. But we have three wonderful authors who are here today. Jessica Greenbaum is an award-winning and widely published poet who recently chose to join our social work tribe. And she and her daughter, Isabel Marcus, construct a family, co-construct a family crisis, personal pain that enhanced her professional understanding. Mary Hume was a core member of our 2011 living room group, a gerontological social worker who, in her use of poetry, challenged, received wisdom about what dementia patients can achieve. Mary began as my student, but I now think of her as my teacher. Millette Israeli is another author who found a second calling in social work, in her case, after a brilliant academic record and successful career in corporate law, and her chapter speaks to the always naughty professional issue of professional disclosure. <clears throat> Hello, my name is Jessica Greenbaum. I was very lucky to fall in with this particular den of thieves. And um, it's a great honor for me to be here where my dad, when this was the College of Physicians and Surgeons, had a lab and was the Associate Chair of Pharmacology for decades. So my chapter, or half of my chapter, um, because my daughter wrote the other half, but I'm just going to read from my part. It was called One Family's Experience of Falling Out of Health, A Mother Remembers, A Daughter Reflects. One summer morning, just when things seemed to be going extremely well for her, my teenage daughter took to her bed. Obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, and intense anxiety struck her down for what has become years. As a writer, I take my problems to the page, and by year three, I thought the form of personal essay in which I could explore what was happening with the goal of keeping myself upright might offer insight and relief. But what moral orientation to our crisis would avoid sheer opportunism in using my daughter's ordeal? I chose the attempt to parse what it meant to be falling day after day from a great height. What exactly were we falling from? If I could deconstruct the experience of our family's bafflement and powerlessness into very small parts, perhaps I could manage the maelstrom. If I could describe my daughter's particular hell, could I make meaning from that? Can heartbreak be mended through writing about it? I do think we look to our collaboration with art to accommodate us to sorrow. There's something about seeing from above the woods in which we were lost, seeing the path we took. It helps us feel closer to coming out into the light. chapter is called I like dancing and singing and prancing and flinging 
using poetry in dementia care. When I was growing up in the 1960s and 1970s, my uncle, Father Bob Hume, a Roman Catholic priest, would often bring to my parents' home people he knew from his ministry who were facing challenges. A few were between jobs and struggling financially. Others suffered from mental illness. Although they were diverse, they shared a lack of support from communities. It was not unusual to have people staying with us until they could recover and move on. Others came and went, and their relationship with my family lasted for years, sometimes to the chagrin of my parents and five older siblings. Others likely characterized these persons as marginal, but I didn't see anything amiss about them. Their stories and the places they'd been fascinated me. Their lives were utterly unlike anything I had experienced. Until I was an adult, I didn't realize that many outside of my family considered that living in a house with strangers constantly coming and going was an odd way for a child to grow up. Perhaps my interest and curiosity in hearing and telling of stories, as well as the expectation to care for others, springs from this unusual upbringing. Although I didn't know it at the time, the strangers passing through my house taught me about being interdependent and the value of listening deeply. Thank you. Hi. Um, my name is Millette Israeli, and the title of my chapter is The Reluctant Storyteller, The Use of Self in Narrative Social Work. During my social work training, perhaps subconsciously triggered by my work with the critically ill and dying, I began to rig rigorously research the fate of my great-grandfather. Rumors had trickled back to my grandfather in Israel that his father had been shot in his hometown when the Nazis first occupied the region. My investigation led me to the Auschwitz website where a quick name search revealed that my great-grandfather had died there, well after the date he was believed to have been killed. Discovering this was surprisingly painful for me. Somehow I was pained that no one had known or would ever really know his story. His narrative and that of so many victims died with him. I think my work with people facing death is really about allowing people to tell their stories before it's too late, mm -hmm. to somehow make up for the many stories that were buried in the war. Thank you. I am verklempt. <laughs> <clears throat> Which means I am blown away. I've read them over and over, but hearing them just touches my heart. They're all just beautiful. I wrote the nuts and bolts of this book. I, I worked on the preface, 
and on the introduction, which I hoped would set the stage and place narrative within the long, proud history of our profession. <clears throat> I uh, titled the preface, A Carnival of Possibilities, which was a phrase by Bodkin. I loved the sound of it, A Carnival of Possibilities. And I had an epigraph that began, quote, by striving to do the impossible, man has always achieved what is possible. Those who have cautiously done no more than they believed possible have never taken a single step forward. Our social workers challenge the idea of what is possible in practice and look at the many steps they took. We hope that this book will open the door to what Botkin termed dialogic imagination, inspiring conversation, awakening ideas, inspiring readers to recognize all the possibilities of their lives. Thank you. Deepu is going to take Q&A. Thank you so much. I'm intrigued with the fact that there were no men in your book. Did you comment on that? No names of clients? No, no, no names men. of men. No men. Oh, no, no, no men. men it, well, the social workers, uh, women outnumber men like, I don't know, 10 to 1. So it just worked out that way. That's a very good point. I don't know if, if your voice carried, but Judith raised a very interesting point that male social workers quickly enter administrative ranks. However, we feel about that, but it happens. Other question? A question for you all. Um, who are you hoping will read this book? Uh, and what do you hope might change uh, for those people who read it? Why don't, you, why don't you tackle that one? I, I hope everybody will read this <laughs> I hope everybody will read this book. I actually was on a mission to get it uh, for sale at the Metropolitan Museum of Art because with a cover like this, who would not want to read this book? And then I had these fantasies of being a docent there and being able to work with groups of people that came in offering them this ontological experience of what they see in a work of art, that it defies timelines and you can connect. So that was my, my personal um, mission with this. But um, it's about story. Who, who doesn't like to read these stories? They're incredible. I think they're very moving and everybody can connect to them. I hope that the Graduate School of Social Work will make this part of their curriculum. I hope the Narrative Medicine Program will make it part of their curriculum. Um, I hope all the graduate schools in the city will make it part of their <laughs> curriculum. So I'm aiming high. <laughs> I, 
I also think that many people don't know what social workers do. I, I, I think Rita wrote in her foreword, and one of the people who was gracious enough to write our blurb, uh, Professor Alex Gitterman, said, this takes us in, into the work. This shows what the work is, and, and how creative, and how wonderful it is. And so I'm hoping that whoever reads this book will get that sense of what a fine profession social work is. No, we're not going to let that patient die. I'm not going to be a murderer. Mm. And she was so frustrated. But I was so incensed at her put down that it turned out that the state has now turned it around. And the social workers are able to give their narrative rather than just make phone call to the audience. Mm. So I thank you for that. And I am deeply embarrassed as a physician of over 50 years that there are that we don't Is, is a social work role. <laughs> we, we teach it and we practice it. And the more help we have, the better. I, I think every patient needs an advocate. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Can we come into a hospital without one? Yeah. Can I speak to that here, please? Um, I think it's incredibly important in the work that I do with folks who are dying and their families and the challenge in self-advocating is so profound that I don't know how they function without it. So thank you for your there is There are some very alarming developments in institutional social so um, in the general medicine clinic here at Presbyterian, um, um, the social workers have more and more been required to do institutional, instrumental, get the ambulance and, and get the M11Q and do the kind of uh, uh, resource work benefits. And they have not been paid to do longitudinal dynamic psychotherapy. So, so, and this is purely on a hospital economic policy level. 
eminent director of social work, Paula Roberts, retired after decades of brilliant leadership. This was several years ago. And in the directorship position in the social work services department was placed a nurse. This is this and is a nurse is now running the Department of Social Work. Because the nurses are deemed more, I don't know, proficient in care management, which is what social work has become. So what do we do, guys? How, how do we make this book sing loudly enough that it can overcome these bureaucratic, organizational, corporate-driven, uh, 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 bottom-line-driven uh, 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 decisions of our institutions? You, you put your finger directly on the problem. That's, it, that's exactly what it is. And people are walking around with the title of social worker who have no training at all. And if it's just ordering an ambulance, I guess you don't need any training. Um, you know, there was a time when we had, this was a wonderful hospital. Everybody wanted to be placed here. Even before Paula Roberts, there were other directors of social work, incredible staff training, interdisciplinary. Everybody wanted to come to Columbia Presbyterian to train. And now, you know, and this is every hospital in the city. It you know. is. I heard somebody talk about, you know, there's this new Medicare <clears throat> regulation that if people come back after they've only been out a very short period of time, the hospital doesn't get paid. And so I went to a conference where the social worker came up with the most brilliant idea, and this is what it was. 24 hours after the person returned from the hospital, they got a call from a social worker who said, you got home okay? Did the bed arrive? Do you have your medications? Who's with you tonight? Brilliant. This was a brilliant idea. They were so happy that they had thought of it. So commonsensical. Yeah. I wanted to also respond to your, your great question about the patient advocates and not having worked with 
many myself directly, certainly in a long time, but I think absolutely it's incredibly important. I think I think you phrased it as there is there are there things that you as a patient advocate might be able to learn from us? And I'm, I'm sure yes. But equally true is the fact that there is surely a lot that I and all we can learn from you. And so, like Judith, I think in some ways, I don't know, maybe Anne, maybe Judith, maybe Rita will take on, I think what, what needs to happen next is that you, forgive me, I didn't hear your name, you need to come to my class of social work students and mm -hmm. talk about the work that you do. Yeah. Wonderful. I need to, maybe, maybe you'll invite me to come into your place of work and do something, and we need to write together. Yes. Because I think that's really, I know that I still can, even though I, I know now that I have been indoctrinated into a silo yeah. and that I very much don't want to be in it anymore, I still do. Yeah. Ha I have knee-jerk reactions sometimes yeah. and I need everybody to, we need to be in it together to remind each other that at any given moment, any one of us might be the perfect or the better mm -hmm. person I think this is a great point in that so many of our professions are siloed because of historic, political, economic, personality reasons. Um, and we're trying to undo a lot of that. That we've, That's been the legacy of healthcare, really, is professional silos and very rigid hierarchies. And, uh, and we're trying to have an effort here at Columbia University to try to develop interprofessional education. And uh, happy to announce that for the first time for Columbia University, we're going to have a day, April 5th, 2018, where classes for all of the health sciences schools are going to be, we don't want to use the word canceled because the students won't mm -hmm. show up, but the, the regularly occurring classes will not happen. And we're going to have an entire day of interprofessional education wow. for the nursing students. So the, the, the point you're raising is absolutely right. We have a legacy of, of siloed training and practice that needs to be undone at every level. Um, and and, and yeah. the social work school is part of it. That's right. And the social work school is a part of it. Thank you. Now, question back here. along with what Rita said and some of the other comments, I'm curious how you feel that the narrative work in the book and, and things like this in terms of training the new group of, you know, or the current social work students to avoid the feelings of, you know, burnout and disillusionment and things like that. How is narrative, how do you see it being used or how can it, how is it continuing to be used to, um, you know, no, I think you're saying, people, I, I had a little talk with Mary Samanti just before we began about so many students who lack the curiosity. It's, ama it's just amazing. And to what the, she, she told me about students she has in a nursing home, I said, well, it's not that, you know, the, the, the people don't have much to say. You know, this is so troubling. Everyone is fascinating. Everyone's stories. Look at the pictures. Talk about the pictures, you know. I think sometimes we have to 
create that kind of curiosity. I think the empathy comes, comes with that. But unfortunately, they're placed in agencies that are also data-driven. And so their supervisors are telling them how to get information that fits on the form. And the form really has nothing about the person. You, you have no idea who the person is, what their past was, what their life is like day to day, what their hopes and fears of the future are. You pick up the form, everyone looks alike. But they're being supervised in this. So it's, it, I don't want to depress myself in the audience, <laughs> but, but it, it's in a very unfortunate, and we hope that book will open up the sense of wonder, and I think many of our workers were working within settings where it didn't appear to be possible, and they were able to carve out a little piece yeah. of, yes. of, of space for themselves to, to do the work. Uh, Alicia in her supervision, Mary in the Alzheimer's, um, you know, it, and this is this is what we we hope for. When people have the vision, they'll begin to think of creative things they can do themselves with story. Do you want to go ahead, please? Um, I also hope that this book will be permission given. Uh, I was a nurse before as a social worker, and the same way that doctors were told, "Leave yourself at home." We were told as nurses, "Leave yourself outside that door." It was the '60s and Vietnam demonstrations. And, and leave yourself outside that door and go in there and take care of that patient. And the same thing with clinical social work. I did therapy for many years, and thank goodness I had some supervisors that said I didn't have to leave myself outside the door. But hopefully this book is permission-giving in that way, too, that people will see the beautiful relationships, development, and change that came because narrative was at the core of it, and that the worker and the client that it's a reciprocal giving and taking, and that they will get permission in the way that Rita has been giving medical students permission through parallel charts, through interprofessional education, and hopefully in reading these stories, people will decide that, that it is okay to do it, that they're not being unprofessional. I, I also have one other thing to sure. add, which is recently I did a uh, workshop at the Cone Children's Hospital in Long Island, and this was for 40 social workers the head of the social work department really had not heard of narrative, and she confessed to me afterwards that she really wasn't sure what this narrative business was. But I had selected a poem uh, because it was a self-care day, and it was an extraordinary response to this and the dialogue that got going. And because I was afraid that I wouldn't have enough material, which is what I'm always afraid of, I added a, um, a video of a doctor who did a rap poetry on trauma because a lot of the social workers at Cone worked in the, in the trauma unit and they were blown away by this and had never seen something like this so it kind of really expanded the, the creativity and the idea of what they could then do themselves and then introduce to clients in terms of reflective writing. So I think little by little it will make inroads and have a footprint. Mm -hmm. I hope so. Well, what do you see the future of narrative medicine if we have verdicts? I didn't quite hear the question. What do you see the future of narrative medicine to prevent burnout? In preventing what? Burnout. 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 I, I think it's extraordinary because the more it feeds you, it feeds you. 
people feed you, their stories feed you, the more you get to know them, that, that how can you be burned out? You know? mm-hmm. You're burned out when it's a repetitive, dull task. I think people, have, I've never known anyone who was burned out of social work because of the people they met, ever. Whenever I teach, I always say, what's the best part of your work? What's the word? The best part is always the people. Always the people. Yeah, really. Just to elaborate on what Anne is saying, people's narratives show us their strengths. Yes. And it's the strengths that permit us to go on, permit them to go on, and that we can share with the world so that people can see more than the hundred media folks, which only talks about the deficits of people. Yeah. We know the strengths, and that's our business to really act I just want to respond to that. My chapter is entirely about burnout, secondary traumatic stress, and compassion fatigue. Um, And the chapter is about my experience of developing PTSD in relation to the young girl that I had to restrain for three hours. Um, And the way that I've used narrative medicine to combat those reactions and how I use it as a supervisor for social work students is not just in the collecting and taking in the stories of others, but in honoring the stories of ourselves. Yes. So in the chapter, which is entitled Another Time of Witnessing, mm-hmm. it's bearing witness to myself mm-hmm. and bearing witness to one another. And that allows for the renewal of generosity, to quote Arthur Frank, um, just to keep on cycling through. Um, because it was only when I allowed myself to share my story at the Narrative Medicine Workshop that I actually began to heal and could return to the lobby of the building where I go yeah. every single day yeah. without having flashbacks. So thank you for your question. And thank you, Chris. That was the perfect answer. Thank you. So I have one more thing. I referring to the social worker um, as a physician sitting in the doctor's lounge. Most physicians feel they burned out. So it's not a matter of the social worker. It's a matter of uh, everyone else that we are trying to take care of. Yeah, let me say little bit about that. Uh, as the practicum supervisor here, we have um, probably 13 groups of two go out to agencies, hospitals, um, Gilda's Club, work with caregivers, professional and family members. And um, one of the most beautiful things is when we do these workshops that are the close reading and the reflective writing, that people often say at the end of one, that they feel more rested when they left than when they came in. And sometimes we do this with residents at 7 o'clock in the morning at a hospital, and they'll come in and slouch in their chair, and they don't really want to be there, and somebody said they have to. And at the end of the hour, they say, I feel better. Or they come back the next week and say, you know, when I left to go do rounds after that, I had a different attitude about things. Part of that is what they're discovering about themselves, Some people talk about they just are reminded that they want to read poetry again, that they get fed by the poetry. And then the relationships that they are building, and as often as we can, we do interprofessional things. Sometimes it's just a group of one profession. But the relationships that they build and how they get to know each other in different ways, what comes out in five minutes of writing, and Mm -hmm. the exercise about writing the story of your name. They look at each other and say, I didn't know that, I didn't know that. And then they report that they work with each other in a different way. The people are interesting to them again. They see themselves as interesting people. And I think they also 
trust these people who they know more about. So when it comes time to get a, a consult or to ask the patient advocate to be a part of it, that I think it's feeding all of those things. I really do. This begins with an, uh, an observation, which is that this group began in some ways, I wouldn't use a loaded term, it's a revolutionary group, meaning that you identify a certain regime mm -hmm. of data. Mm -hmm. and, and actually, dare I say it, capitalism, um, um, and you identified the need for uh, some kind of counter movement yes. to that. Mm -hmm. So one of the questions I guess I want to surface here, and we've heard it's been kind of underneath the surface and a lot of what's been said in terms of um, the crushing character of certain dominant institutional <laughs> ways they work at this point and the increasing power of those and pervasiveness of those ways. Of, of, I, I guess the question has to do with surfacing the political nature of what mm -hmm. you're doing mm -hmm. and, and as, as an actual um, movement that has some political yeah, well, you know, it's the old saying, I know it's been credited to so many people, you start where you are, you use what you have, and you do what you can. And I think that that's the story of so many movements, and I think that's the way we started with our little group meeting together. And for more than a year, five than a year. Uh, we just started, we said, what are we going to do about this? Well, we're all doing something. Let's share that. And then good things start to happen. You know, I, I like to believe that obviously narrative medicine came in at exactly the right moment, but I think there are a lot of things that can come in at exactly the right moment if you're, if you're looking for them and you're ready for them to come in. We were just very fortunate that it was this. <laughs> yeah. Thank you.